Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that we can sing that all we have is Christ, and yet that's all we need. And even as we think about Lord, what it means to give and be generous this morning, I pray that we would realize that because we have Christ, we are rich, Lord. And out of that richness, may we be abundantly generous with others. Lord, help us to be humble before Your Word this morning, Lord. We don't want to just be encouraged or instructed. Or challenge, Lord, but we want to be transformed. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Before we、uh, jump into the Word this morning, I want to take a moment and offer a brief encouragement. Now, in God's kindness, we've continued to to experience some growth, and that really is God's grace.、Um, I remember when my kids were little, I asked them, "Why do you think Lighthouse?" Has survived and, and grown, and and they gave some good answers. But my hope was then for them to really understand that it was all about God. And so I said, in the end, it's just grace. It's just God being kind. And then I said, there are churches that are better than us. They have nicer buildings. They have better preachers. And one of my boys said, yeah, but we're probably nicer. And、um, I'd like to think so. I don't know if that's true. But now, obviously, with growth has come a lot of blessings. We don't want to take that for granted.、Uh, more resources, more opportunities to build up and invest in other churches. Of course, the chance to do life with this family. But one of the challenges is that we're somewhat outgrowing this facility, and it affects parking,、uh, the sanctuary, and overflow, and of course, the children's ministry. All have experienced overcrowding at times. Beyond this, it affects our outreach. It's Really, such a blessing whenever an unbeliever joins us, and so we should kind of hate the fact that it's hard for them to find a parking space or a seat. Now, one of the unique challenges is that our second service tends to be larger in in terms of service size, but our first service tends to be larger in terms of children's ministry. So we can't just ask people to go from one service to the other. So where does that kind of leave us? Well, first. Just pray that God would be continue to be kind, that He would provide exactly what we need. He knows what we need. Let's just pray and ask Him for to be gracious in that way. And of course, that He would give us wisdom as to how to navigate these next seasons of of ministry. We exist by grace, and so through humble prayer, let's continue to invite it. But it also means that ideally, we would try to shift things around a bit. So first, if your family with kids in the children's ministry, if you can consider coming to the second service, that it's a huge help. Uh, if even ten or fifteen families switch, that would really help solve our problems. And even if you only do it once or twice a month, that helps us out. I know it can be a, a kind of a minor inconvenience, but at the same time, it might be a simple way to to love our church family. Second, if you're someone who doesn't have kids、uh, in the children's ministry, you're, you're single or your kids are older, like ours, maybe consider coming to first service when you can. Again, that's a huge help in balancing out the numbers, <clears throat> and probably most helpful. Uh, is if you come to third service,、uh, as my kids say, our third service is basically the same as the first two, just smaller with better snacks. And so we we encourage you. It is small,、uh, but we do believe we we need to grow it, and we believe we can grow it. But we need your help to do that. Now, Lord willing, sometime in the new year, we will add a children's ministry to third service, which I think will make it easier for many of you. But until then, whenever you can visit,、uh, that's really helpful. In fact. We want to encourage the members to try to be there at least once a month to attend. That would pretty much immediately solve our, our size problems. I know our family is there at least once a month, and we we counted it grace. It's been a blessing.、Um, I'm sure we'll share more about this in the coming months. But just in summary, 
right? Adults from second to first, kids from first to second, everyone to third, and then we're, we're good to go. <laughs> now that all being said, let's continue to be very thankful for God's kindness. He's been good to us far beyond what we deserve. Like I mentioned, let's just be, be in prayer concerning these, these very good problems. With that, let's jump into our study. We are taking a break from our study in Galatians to begin our Christmas series. And as I say, every Christmas season, I really love this time of year. I love the food. I love the way my wife decorates the house. I love the food. I love friends and family and the food. So, so what about you? When, when you think of the Christmas season, what do you look forward to? What is it about? What do you hope for? Think of those famous Christmas lyrics. Uh, Tis the season to be, how would you finish that sentence? Now, according to the song, it's tis the season to be jolly, uh, tis is an old school conjunction for it is. We don't use that very much. You're probably not telling your kids like tis time to go to bed. Uh, but I think we should start using it. Tis time to visit third service, everyone. So <laughs> be there. Um, jolly has the idea of being cheerful or festive. And, and that's good. It really is a season to be jolly, a season to enjoy, a season to appreciate the, the sights and sounds and smells and everything else. But as Christians, we want to think about what it means to us as believers Right, tis the season, but for what? Because on one hand, I think we should enjoy this year, this time of year more than anyone, because we not only get to appreciate the festivity of it all, but more importantly, we get to know and recognize the true meaning of Christmas as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. So I really hope we would enjoy the Christmas season as this kind of unique blessing from God. But at the same time, we really do feel as Christians, it's a season of looking beyond ourselves of not just looking up and looking in, but really of looking out. We need to consider what it means that at Christmas, love came down, and because we've experienced that love, we should then live out that love towards others. And so what we want to do each week for the, for, the next four, for the next four weeks is to answer that question, tis the season for what? And specifically, we'll look at how it, it really tis the season for, for looking out and for loving and for serving others. <clears throat> So for these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we'll look at how tis a season for giving, for serving, for loving, and for sharing. And the hope is this, that as Christians, we would appreciate the Advent and the gospel of Christ and, that, that, and, the, and the love that we have been shown, but then look outward and try to encourage and bless others with the love of Christ. So this morning, we, we get to look at the idea of tis a season to, be, to give and be generous. Now, admittedly, there's always a moment of hesitation when I'm speaking on giving and generosity and money. I know that there are, for many in this church, they find it a great joy to be generous, but for others, it can be an uncomfortable topic. I mentioned earlier kind of our growth and the good challenges of it, but I feel like if we just preached on giving, we can kind of solve that problem, right? We could do an eight-week series on generosity and then trust by the end, there'll be plenty of empty seats, right? You can, you can come to whatever service you want to, maybe the one service we have by that time. But more seriously for me, my, my worry is that visitors will come because unfortunately for some, <clears throat> they do feel the church just kind of wants money. I've literally had unbelievers tell me that. So usually pastors are concerned that visitors won't come. But when I speak on money, it crosses my mind like, you know, it'd be cool like if no visitors came today. In fact, if you are visiting, just know that we don't do sermons on money and giving too often. I think the last one was in 2021. So we hope you'll come back. We hope you'll continue to hear about the gospel that offers not only hope for eternal life, but for everyday life. Now, that all being said, I'm actually thankful that you're here because of the simple premise that we'll take time looking at this morning, and it's this, that there is great joy and generosity. 
And we need to really understand this because otherwise the rest of this message is going to be more duty than delight, more drudgery than joy. For many of us, giving is is kind of like exercising. Like we, we know it's good, but not a lot of fun. Or if you like exercising, it's like eating your vegetables, right? Or if you like eating your vegetables, it's like doing your taxes. Hopefully you can relate to one of those. Uh, if you're the person who enjoys exercise, vegetable, and doing your taxes, I, I'm, I'm nothing for you because apparently you're not experiencing the fall like the rest of us. But hopefully you get this idea. It, it, if generosity isn't a joy, then it's a responsibility at best and it's to be reviled at worst. So again, you have to get this idea. There is great joy in generosity. It's me- meant to be a blessing. It's meant to be a grace. It's meant to bring us incredible happiness. So why isn't that always the case? Because as much as there is joy in being generous, there is misery in being materialistic. And this is because while many as money is meant to be a blessing, it can easily consume our hearts and become this cruel master that really robs us of joy. As you may have heard uh, me say, money makes a terrific gift, but a terrible God. And so as much as there is joy in being generous, just remember there's also misery in being materialistic. Now, you may not think that describes you, because often we think of someone who's materialistic, we think of someone who is rich or wants to be rich. They, they want the nice cars and the nice clothes. As the young people say, they got serious drip, right? By the way, I don't know if I use that right, <clears throat> but since my kids cringe when I use slang, I feel it's like my responsibility to, as a dad to, to use it. But materialism isn't just about wanting to be rich. More basically, being materialistic means elevating wealth and possessions beyond their true meaning. Right, the person who finds their identity and what they dr- drive is materialistic, but so is the person who finds their security in their retirement fund. And so is the person who's struggling to make ends meet and gets stressed when they have to pay the bills. And so is the person who isn't generous with ministry and with others. And so understand that though most of us would say being materialistic is bad, most of us know what it's like to swim in that pool. I mean, I'm preaching on this and yet a few things happened just over the last few weeks that made me realize how easily worry about finances can, can get a hold of my heart. And I think, again, I think most of us have experienced this, right? None of you are saying like, I just, just good, I don't have more money. Like I would just wish I had less. But realize this, being materialistic, whereas the Bible describes it, the love of money, it's really this devastating sin that robs us of joy. And yet as serious as it is, and in the 20 plus years of helping to pastor this church, I've never had someone come into my office and say, and ask for counseling for, for materialism. And I've had some people confess some pretty dark skins, dark sins, but no one has said, Pastor Kim, the real problem is that I, I just love shopping too much. I love, I love shoes, I love handbags, whatever. I've, I, that being said, I have counseled those who are stressed over money and couples who have fought over money. Um, I've, I've, stressed par- I've counseled parents who have given the wrong values to their kids concerning money. Unfortunately, all that is far too common. But understand when we make money an idol, a counter for God, we're placing our faith and our hope in something that wasn't meant to bear the weight of our existence. But it doesn't have to be that way. I think for some of you, there is such fear to being generous because you think, okay, it's gonna cost you some measure of security or joy, and yet you're not realizing that really your materialism is robbing you of joy and holding you back from the happiness that, that God offers. When we treasure Christ, like when we find our identity and our security and our joy in Him, we'll find true lasting contentment. Now, honestly, many of you won't believe me. You'll kind of see the point of this message as you should probably be a little more generous. 
Kind of like when your doctor tells you, you should probably exercise a little more. And there'll be this general belief that it's good, but not better and definitely not joy inducing. But I, I really do pray that you'd believe this. There is joy and generosity. It's meant to be a grace. And so again, I'm really thankful to speak on generosity this morning because it means I get to talk about delight, not just duty. I get to speak against the tyranny of things. I, I get to encourage you to experience a life of love that God intended. Really, I get to, to speak about joy. And so with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. One of the reasons I chose this passage is that it's about generosity, but it's a generosity seen in light of the advent of Christ. It's really a Christmas passage. Verse nine is the Advent story in the gospel in one sentence. And it tells us that Christmas should really encourage us to be a generous people. So follow along with me as, follow along with me as I read 2 Corinthians chapter eight, verses seven through nine. Again, uh, so at this point, Paul's been encouraging the Corinthian church to be generous. And then he says this, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove my earnestness of others, prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Paul wants them to excel in generosity, but it's a generosity rooted in the gospel. And so here's our key idea. Gospel grace leads to joy and generosity. Gospel grace leads to joy and generosity. Let's look at three key ideas. The first is this, the gospel lovingly calls us to generosity. To provide a bit of context, in chapters eight and nine of 2 Corinthians, Paul's encouraging the Corinthian church modern day, in modern day Greece to really live out their faith and repentance by urging them to finish this collection they had begun for the impoverished saints in the Jerusalem churches. In other words, the, the Christians in the Jerusalem churches, they're, they're struggling, they're going through poverty, and Paul's encouraging the Corinthian churches to really be generous with them. Earlier in the passage, Paul says this, look at verses one through four of chapter eight. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So he's calling them to be generous, and he offers this picture of the Macedonia churches who were suffering and in poverty themselves, and yet literally begging for the opportunity to give others, to give to others. So, so kind of get that again. They were in extreme poverty, begging to give. And it becomes a stunning picture that was meant to challenge the Corinthians. But Paul isn't simply telling them to be generous because that's what good Christians do, be like the Macedonians. He, he, talks, he then talks about how generosity is rooted in the grace of the gospel. And so in other words, because of the gospel's work in our hearts, we are meant to be generous and that generosity is meant to be a joy. Again, because of the gospel's work in our hearts, we are meant to be generous and that generosity is meant to be a joy. Look at verse seven. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So in a sense, Paul is just talking about the Christian life, a life that is the outworking of gospel grace. 
And when he says this act of grace, he's building on what he had said earlier about giving and generosity. In other words, he's telling them to excel in giving and generosity. But just notice what Paul's done. He's put giving into the realm of fruit produced by the grace of the gospel. <clears throat> as much as faith and, and speech and knowledge and earnestness, they're produced in you by grace when you become a Christian, so too generosity is a result of the grace of God in our lives. That's why he says in verse eight, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So when he says this is not a command, he isn't saying they, they don't have to give because he's gonna clearly call them to give a few verses later. But he's saying that the reason they should do it isn't simply because he told them so, but because it's this natural response of, a lo of love uh, from a heart transformed by grace. That's why he uses that phrase uh, genuine, right? A genuinely Christian heart of love will be generous. In other words, if your heart has been changed, you, you, you will love, you will, you'll love and your love will result in selfless giving. It's kind of like as parents, we tell our kids to say thank you because it's the right thing to do. But there's real joy when they display a grateful attitude on their own. And that's actually ultimately what you want. You don't want kids who just remember to say thank you. You want kids who have grateful hearts. And this is Paul. He doesn't want them to simply remember to give. He wants them to have generous hearts. So what does this mean? First, remember giving is normal expected Christianity. As has been said, when we became a Christian, our wallets were supposed to become Christian too. I think because of the power of idolatry of money, we, we can, someone can separate it out as if it's something largely ineffective by our faith. So, so I pray, I go to church, I serve, I'm doing pretty good. Like I don't give too much, but that's not a big deal. But that's not, that is just us not taking the sin of selfishness seriously. I mean, we, we fight anger and lust and jealousy and other sins. And yet we treat a lack of generosity like it's not really that big of a deal. But the fact that we don't think it's a big deal just shows how deep and dark that sin is. I mean, the love of money is so deceptive that it's fooled us into not just ignoring the sin of selfishness, but even at times embracing and flaunting it. And so in our passage, Paul says we, we can't overlook that, right? Again, in verse seven, but as, as you excel in everything, see that you excel in this act of grace also. We have to do it. So in the same way you would try to grow and be faithful in other areas of your Christian life, uh, you should grow and try to be faithful in the area of generosity. And our second idea flows, follows from this. Let giving be a spiritual barometer. I think often we take account of our finances, but we really should be taking account of our hearts. I don't think any of us would say like, I, I pray enough or I'm wise enough, but I think we can think we're generous enough but our giving should tell us something about ourselves. And maybe think of it this way, if, if money is, is a spiritual issue, it also then becomes like a spiritual barometer. So again, let it tell you something about yourself. Let your generosity or selfishness, let the, the fights you have with your spouse over your finances, let the way you give to the church, let, uh, let the way that you tell someone, or let that all tell you something about where your heart is. Because hopefully your, your generosity and your enjoyment in blessing others and your desire to see your resources used to spread the gospel, that will tell you where you are with God. I've mentioned this before, but the elders and the pastoral staff don't know the giving of the individuals of the church. And I prefer it that way. I think I would be tempted to sin if I knew what people give. I'm like, like if you're giving like a million dollars to the church, I'm gonna be tempted to treat you differently. 
So if you gave me a check with seven digits on it and, and said, I don't really like preaching from the Old Testament, I'd be like, yeah, it is old, isn't it? I'm like, <laughs> do we really need to go there? Okay, hopefully I wouldn't do that, but you get the point. I don't really wanna know what anyone gives. But the one downside of not knowing is that we can't actually walk with you in that area. In other words, you have to be diligent to search your heart and to let your generosity or lack of it tell you how you're doing spiritually. As, as one more encouragement, just remember that even as, as this is about normal Christianity, uh, it's about God's glory, it's about the good of others, but it's also, again, about our joy. And we know this for various reasons, but one is this, the Bible tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, meaning that he's always loving us. So we have to conclude this, that each and every commandment that God gives us is given in love. So kind of slow down and take that in. The God of the universe loves us with this unfathomable love, and he is calling us to be generous, meaning that it's not just for our good, but it is for our joy. Look, if, if you believe God loves you, that he saves you, then believe this, that his call to generosity isn't just a call to obedience, it's a call to happiness. He wants us to find that joy and generosity. For those of you parents in particular, can I challenge you to teach and demonstrate this truth to your kids? Don't teach them through word or deed that money is a savior. Rather, teach them that money is simply a means to love God and love others. Teach them the great joy of generosity. And I say this with a measure of gravity, actually, because as we've discussed before, very few of our kids will walk away from the faith because of drugs or crime. But I think too many will walk away because they simply fall in love with the world. And so as parents, we protect them from this by demonstrating through our lives and what we teach that money is not the great treasure, but Christ is. I know my brothers and I are thankful for many things that my parents taught us, but one would have to be that money is not for our good, but it's for God and for others. And so though they had little, they lived a life of true generosity. And I think it impacted each of us in pretty profound ways. And so just consider your life, consider your kids. Does it teach them generosity with the church and others? Does it say money isn't the means to happiness? Does it proclaim that Christ is the great treasure? All right, let's move on to point number two. The gospel beautifully demonstrates generosity. The gospel beautifully, I'm sorry, the gospel beautifully illustrates generosity. I was in Japan with Pastor Gavin last week teaching on, uh, teaching a counseling class at a seminary. We were visiting our church plan. It was pretty exciting. Maybe I'll share more about it later in the month. But I was amazed at just how many Christmas decorations there are throughout uh, the, the cities there. Um, but the one thing I didn't notice was any nativity scenes. And obviously that's sad for various reasons. Uh, but part of it, I just, I love the nativity scene, that, that picture of Christ who came into our world. When my kids were younger, I, I really felt it should be as authentic as possible. So I wouldn't put the wise men near the stable, right? Because if you read Matthew 2, they definitely came at a later point in time. So if you visit our house, you would see like three wise men on some random counter, like nowhere near baby Jesus, but like, this is the word of God, okay? So if you know I'm gonna visit your house, I would move them, because otherwise I'm like, do they even love the Bible? I don't know. But here's the thing, it's something about the Nativity scene. It's, such, it's, it's a blessing, it's such a unique part of our faith. It's, it's God the Son entering our world as a baby, not born in a castle among the elite, but in a stable with the animals. 
And yet in our passage this morning, Paul brings up this picture, not just to kind of stir up feelings and nostalgia or the such, but to show us this is what generosity looks like. Because in verses seven and eight, Paul's appeal to the gospel is the foundation of giving, right? This is just what happens when our hearts have been transformed. But then in verse nine, he gives them the gospel, not only to remind them of the truths that transform, but to give the ultimate picture, if you will, of generosity. And really verse nine is one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel we have in a single verse in all of scripture. It says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Not that we need, um, now we need to, what we need to see is that as Paul offers this one sentence summary of the gospel, he's trying to make clear the costliness of grace. Now that may sound weird, costly grace, because we know grace is free. If it wasn't free, it wouldn't be grace. But realize that as much as grace is free to us, it was infinitely costly to Christ. We see this first in the incarnation. That's what we celebrate during Christmas. It's the idea that God, the son took on human flesh. He became a real person. I mean, just think about that. Jesus was God from eternity past and he enjoyed the joy of fellowship within the Trinity and the blessing of being worshiped by the heavenly beings for all of time. But he put that aside to enter into our world and to experience suffering and struggle for the first time in his eternal existence. As it says in our passage, he became poor. This wasn't about money. It's about becoming the God man. And so this little picture of Jesus in a manger is less about cuteness and more about costliness. Our Christmas should remind us of the great sacrifice and generosity of our Savior. And so in the nativity scene, the picture of giving and generosity began to take shape. And yet the cost wasn't just about the incarnation, but about the cross, right? He became poor so that we might become rich. How does that happen? Remember that Jesus didn't come to be born in a manger, just to be born in a manger, but to die a sinner's death. And this is because while God created us to live for him, all of us fail to do that. We all sin, we all fall short every day. We fail to love. And because of this, we deserve hell. We deserve eternal punishment. But in love, Jesus came to take that punishment for us. That is what Jesus was doing on the cross. He experienced the wrath of God for every believer for all of time. Why? So that we might know the riches of salvation. There was no greater cost. So listen again to verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And with this, what we must appreciate is kind of this picture of giving that Paul is offering. Right, he's already given them the example of the Macedonians. That was a stunning picture of generosity that flowed out of poverty. But here, Paul takes it even further by offering the, the incarnation as well as the cross of Christ as this ultimate picture of sacrificial giving. Now, this picture of sacrifice isn't really a benchmark or a standard because we'll never reach it. It's unattainable. But at the very least, it should be a challenge. Our Lord and creator, the God of the universe, gave far beyond what we can possibly imagine. Will there ever be a sacrifice too great? And so as you contemplate your own generosity, you must be reminded often of the generosity of our savior. So for example, maybe you know a family in need. Maybe they're having trouble making ends meet. 
as you consider your generosity with them, be reminded of Christ's unfathomable generosity with you. So here's the kind of the practical question. Does your generosity display the generosity of the gospel? Now, one question you might be asking is, what, well, what does that mean practically when it comes to giving to the church? And I can't give you an exact number or figure, but I think you want to really just be honest before God and consider what generosity is. So for example, one question I've been asked on a few occasions is should New Testament Christians tithe? In other words, as our Christians required to tithe, there should be more voluntary as we call it grace giving. What is a tithe? Tithe has the meaning of a tenth. It's the idea that people should give 10% of their income to the church. It really was an Old Testament practice. Now, as we look at 1 Corinthians 16 and passages like this, we are commanded to give and to give regularly. But do I think the Bible requires you to tithe? No, largely because it was part of, because we are part of the new covenant and it was an old covenant requirement. But since the Bible teaches proportional giving, so based on what we have, for most of us, it shouldn't be less than 10%, but more. I like how one pastor described it. He says that the very poorest of Jews in the Old Testament were required to give a tithe. How much more should we who proportionally are wealthy give? Or as Randy Alcorn says, tithes should not be the standard of giving, but the training wheels of giving. In other words, if like if you've never given with any significant thought, maybe start with 10%, and then as you grow and mature, you can go from there. But kind of backing up here is the bigger point. Christmas time in general and the gospel in specific should just remind us of this call to be generous. And so how will you do that? Maybe a few things come to mind for this Christmas season. One is just finding joy and actually giving gifts to others. I mean, if you hate Christmas shopping, if, if buying presents is just a big pain, then you're not only missing out on the joy of generosity, but you're missing on the opportunity to honor God. Like, I think we of all people should be joyful gift givers. And I'm not saying every, every gift's gonna be a hit, you can ask my wife, but it should be a joy because it's a simple opportunity to love others, like to give of what you have to someone else. Second is just to seek to help people in need. Right, even in a church like ours, right? There are people struggling financially. Could you bless one of them? A family struggling to pay the bills. What about one of our missionaries? Not only the ones we have, but we're sending two more out to Japan next year. Could you support them? Or, or could it be a form of evangelism? Like, do you know someone from work or from your kid's school who could use some help? And, and your kindness, your financial kindness will point them towards Christ as you share about Jesus with them. Lastly, evaluate your giving to the church. Obviously, it's, it's a very costly to do ministry in this area. It's one of the, the most expensive places to live in the nation. And so we need to be committed to giving to continue gospel ministry. And I, I do say we because I understand the staff and the elders are very committed to giving as well. Like being a pastor of the church doesn't absolve me from generosity. And so like many of you, I'm, we're, our family's trying to give a significant portion of our income to ministry. But beyond that, as we talked about last week, Lighthouse has been has really trying to be committed to be generous with others. Our goal this year is to give away close to half a million dollars to ministries outside of ourselves. Like it's not gonna bless us really. <clears throat> it's just gonna try to alleviate suffering, spread the gospel, do gospel ministry. And, and we should be able to do this. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, our church has incredible economic potential, right? To, to just be so very generous. And we really could do some pretty amazing gospel ministry if we continue to be faithful in our giving. And so, so we're asking you to be generous with the church so that we can be generous with the gospel. And so, this week, you know, evaluate your giving, talk with your spouse and, and consider, you know, are you being, is there ways that you can be more generous?
All right, last point. <clears throat> the gospel powerfully offers us hope in our generosity. I'm guessing most of us would like to be more generous, even if it doesn't always go the way you plan. Like have you ever given a gift and it didn't go so well? A while back when our youngest son was in kindergarten, he asked me for a cardboard box to make a spaceship. I didn't have one. But then later he was in school and the other kids weren't. So I, I, we went out and we found one and the other kids decided to make him a spaceship. Right, so they put in a couple of hours into transforming this box into a spaceship. And, and I'm pretty excited. I, I pick him up from school and I say, hey, we got this surprise for, me, for you when you get home. And he said, is it an iPhone? I'm like, no, you're like five. Like, what are you gonna do with an iPhone? He's like, yeah, you're right. Is it an iPad? I'm like, no, you don't, you don't. It's a cardboard box. That's what you're getting. And you're gonna love it. Despite those times when generosity doesn't go as planned, I think all of us would want to be more generous, but how? In other words, assuming generosity is not only the right thing to do, but the joyful thing, it's not only duty, but delight, it does kind of leave us with the question, how do we then get there? Like, again, I think most of us would love to be more generous. We'd love to find joy in generosity. How awesome would it be to just <clears throat> find joy in giving to others? But how? After all, the, the moment we start to think about it, and even now, maybe these are crossing your mind, um, our hearts are kind of flooded with worries and fears. Like, well, what will this mean to our future? What can't I buy for myself? What about college funds or retirement? What about paying the bills? What if I, I can't get my kids more than I had growing up? What will people think of me if I, I drive a certain car, I live in a, uh, wear certain clothes? Uh, how will my parents respond if I don't live a certain style, uh, level of, of, of life? If you think about it, you can really sum up all these concerns with this simple idea. If I give away, I will have less for myself and my family. Again, just about every concern can be summed up in that idea. If I give away, I will have less for myself and my family. So how do we overcome these fears? It comes by grace. I mean, something we see in this passage is that generosity isn't merely about willpower or guilt trips from the pulpit or how uh, some are wired. It's not about how you're raised. It's not about ethnicity. It's a fruit of the grace of the gospel. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul uses the example of the Macedonians and their generosity to encourage the Corinthians. And yet it wasn't to make them feel guilty, like, oh, look how much they gave and they have nothing. He offers the Macedonians generosity as an example of God's grace. He's basically telling them, this is what the power of the gospel can do in someone's life. Verse one, he says, we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Like he's holding before them, not just a church as an example of giving, but really the gospel of Christ that can transform our hearts. He wants them to see grace so that they can live out that same grace in their lives. And this makes sense in light of the fact that, that our lack of generosity really is a heart issue. Sometimes we think it's a, it's a financial issue, it's a numbers issue, but it really is a heart issue, right? Because we were made to be generous. We were made to find joy in generosity. I mean, we were created in the, the image of a triune God who, who, who loves uh, fully and purposefully, and we get to do that as well. And so finding joy and generosity was part of how we were designed and made. And so were it not for the fall, not only would each of us uh, be sacrificially generous, we'd actually find deep joy in that. So what happened? Why does it seem better to gain than to give? Why is, do we find so much more joy in, in kind of buying big things than being big hearted? Well, as you know, it's sin. It's, sin is not something the wrong things we do, but it's kind of that disease that corrupts our entire being. It, it turns the love that was meant to go upward to God and then overflow outward towards others and bends it inward until we kind of become the, the greatest objects of our own affection. 
And this means that rather than love others, we love ourselves. And rather than find joy in giving, we take our greatest happiness in getting. So money is no longer a means to worship God, expand his kingdom. It's a means to glorify ourselves and expand our own kingdoms. In other words, sin turns money from the currency of worship and love into the currency of self. Or maybe we could put it this way simply, why do we love money? Because we love ourselves. But here's where the gospel changes everything. I mean, as we described earlier, the gospel means that we, we deserve hell, we're given heaven. But as we so often talked about, the gospel is not just about eternal life, but it's about everyday life. And one of the things it means is that we've been given a new heart with new affections. And so that we can grow in godly living and that we're able to find joy in doing those things that we were made to do, like loving and serving, giving and being generous. The point being this, the only way we can grow in generosity is if we grow in our relationship with Christ, right? It's by the grace of the gospel that joy and generosity flourishes. I mean, maybe you sit here, just, it's hard to imagine like, oh man, I can't imagine just really being that generous of a person. But can I remind you just to hope in the gospel? It doesn't promise you money, but it does promise a transformed heart. And from that transformed heart, can come a life of generosity. Practically, what can we do? I think if we wanna grow in generosity, we have to grow in our walk with God. Right? In other words, if the power of generosity comes from the grace of God, then we should do those things to invite grace. It is, again, a spiritual issue. So it's a matter of grace and faith. It's a matter of prayer and the word. It's a matter of humility and repentance. Like, have you ever repented over your materialism? Lord willing, those things lead to the necessary change. So for example, maybe just start with pray praying about it, like, just pray, God, will you help me to be more generous? And maybe for some of you, that's a scary prayer because you're thinking that's the one God's gonna answer. Like he hasn't given me a husband or he hasn't given me a new job, but I could just see him answering that one. And then you'll worry about what sacrifices do you have to make? But just come before God and just say, God, help me to have joy in my generosity. Or maybe you find accountability. I think in a lot of our accountability groups, we ask questions about sin and about thought life and about loving our families. Have you ever thought about asking about money and generosity? I think that would be a real encouragement to our walks. But I think this might be one of the biggest ones. We need to fuel our faith with the truths of the gospel. I mean, that actually seems to be what Paul is doing. He's encouraging them to really, to, to really consider the gospel, to think about the gospel, meditate on the gospel, and let that transform uh, his heart. Maybe we could put it this way. As you know, life really is about faith. Faith is about what we believe and what we trust. It has to do with how we understand God, our world, ourselves. And faith determines how we respond to life. And obviously we should ultimately put our faith in God, but what we forget is that when we don't put our faith in God, we are putting it somewhere else. Most of us know people, right? They, they find their faith in their jobs or their faith uh, in their boyfriend or girlfriend for some love or, or faith in their children for happiness, you know, faith in their health for security. And this is so true of money. Much of our world places their faith in money. Money is a source of security, of identity, of happiness. And really, again, I think most of us know what it's like to believe that more money would mean a better life. But let this kind of take root in your hearts. Money is a counterfeit God, right? This, this doesn't mean that money is evil. In fact, it's meant to be a blessing and it should be a means to worship God and love others but it can quickly morph into the object of our love and faith and worship. And so this is where kind of faith comes into play. Faith allows me to see the spiritual realities of God that really govern the physical realities of this world. 
Faith allows me to see that money is a, a terrific gift and yet it's a terrible God. And so it, it, it allows me to see money as an opportunity to spread the gospel and to alleviate suffering and to love others. Now this all being true, why is it so hard? Like I'm telling you this, does that solve the problem? I think in part it's because so often we're kind of fueling our faith in the creation over the creator. We're fueling our faith in money and convincing ourselves that we need something um, to be happy or to be satisfied. The way we kind of describe in our counseling class is that imagine in your heart, there are two fires, one for your worship of Christ, one for your worship of, of your idols or the world. The question about which fire is gonna grow is which one do you pour fuel on? So for example, maybe, you know, hopefully you go to church and you hear a sermon, you do your quiet times, maybe small groups. And so you're kind of fueling your faith for, for three or four hours a week. Now, on the other hand, think about how much it's, how easy it is to fuel our faith in the things of this world. Think about all the, the commercials you see on TV or on the internet telling you like, you need to have this to be happy or successful or productive, or maybe just look at your bills. Like, and you start to dwell upon that, like how much money you owe, or you begin to, to think about buying something and, and then you start to surf the net. And before you know, hours have passed and you've convinced yourself, I need this to be happy or Maybe you just listen to the news and you hear about the rising in inflation or the cost of school or you catch yourself just being jealous of your coworker's car. You go clothes shopping, not because you really need anything, but because you love to shop and you love the feeling of buying something new or uh, that maybe it makes you feel attractive. Think about it. By the end of the week, you spent countless hours fueling your love of money. In a sense, though you would... Um, through what you've watched, what you've, what you've clicked on, what you've meditated on, you've kind of poured all this fuel on the fire of your, your love of money and it's grown into a raging uh, forest fire. And in that, should we really be surprised that the God of money holds such a place in our hearts? We've spent the week worshiping at its altar and doing daily devotions and materialism. And I really believe that in our passage, this is why Paul holds before us the gospel to fuel our faith. He wants us to like look at the gospel and think about the gospel and be moved by the gospel. That's why he says in verse nine, for you know, the tense of the Greek word here can be translated for you are knowing, right? It's, it's not this past experience of knowledge like you once heard, but this ongoing understanding of the gospel for you are continually knowing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He's telling them they must have this constant, continuous, ongoing understanding of the gospel. They must meditate on it. They must preach it to themselves. They must let it fuel their faith in Christ. Right? The gospel must be upon their hearts so that it shows the glories of Christ, which reveal the inadequacies of the money, that, which reveal the inadequacies of money that is, that is often difficult to see behind the facade of wealth. I mean, imagine instead of doing like kind of your daily devotions and materialism, you spent each day just meditating the gospel and how it changes everything. I mean, imagine you thought about the fact that the gospel means our security isn't in our bank accounts, our retirement fund. Our security is in Christ. Understand that our security is in Christ. This means that money isn't about establishing earthly security, but building up eternal treasure. It means that I'm absolutely certain that God knows my finances. He knows what I need. He knows my future. So I don't have to be sovereign over life by using money as this false means of security. Like if I have enough, I'm in control, I'll be safe. I can entrust my future to the one who actually is in control of my future. And so with the security that rests in the sovereignty of God, I can be generous with others knowing my Lord will take care of me. 
The gospel means my identity is in what I wear or drive or where I live. So I don't have to live according to the world's idea of what is important or what is popular or what gives significance. Life isn't about what I've secured or what I've accomplished, but what Christ has accomplished and what he secured for me on the cross. And this means I don't need to use my money as a means to establish some shallow identity based on the world's idea of significance. Rather, I can use my money to tell people about the significance of my savior. And the gospel means my happiness isn't in my possessions and adventures. It's not in nice handbags or the latest cell phone. And so rather than invest in myself, I can invest my money in the church and in the ministry of the gospel. I mean, imagine you thought about that every day, fueling your faith with the gospel, you would truly find joy and generosity. And so from this, just two practical tips. First, just don't fuel your faith in money, like guard your heart. Be aware of those things that would fuel your love of money. Do you need to avoid internet shopping? Do you need to avoid looking at your portfolio and seeing how you're doing every day? Again, you know those things that fuel your faith in money, guard your heart against them. And second, conversely, fuel your faith in Christ. Like I already mentioned, meditate on the truths of the gospel. But beyond that, just think, what can I do to fuel my faith in Christ? Maybe it's just consider your intake of the word. Of course, Sunday, morning, uh, uh, Sunday mornings and small groups, personal devotions, listening to sermons online, theologically rich worship songs as you drive or exercise, read good books on money, Randy Alcorn has written some excellent ones, including the treasure principle that our church went through years ago. Beyond this, be around people who are generous. Some of you are an encouragement to me as I see your generosity with others. Talk to people you know are generous. Ask them, okay, what encourages you and challenges you to be generous? Bring your family on board. I know for us, our kids are always happy to be generous and that encourages me to be generous. Lastly, invest, invest now in others. For instance, rather than investing in a particular stock with your extra money and kind of following it religiously, invest in a missionary and follow them and see what eternal dividends look like. All this to say, the gospel gives us the picture of generosity. So let that picture fuel your faith in Christ so that you might treasure him above all things. Because when you do, money will not be a God, simply a means to worship the true God and love others. So I hope this week, this Christmas season, you'll think about your giving in light of the gospel and seek ways to be generous with the church and others. Let me close with this. When we've talked about money in the past, we've often discussed that this isn't what the pastors and the elders want from you, but it's what we want for you. But I understand, I'm not just saying that. I, like, I really believe that's true. When, because when I was studying and writing this sermon, my mind wasn't often going to our budget and the such but I thought often about how some of you are kind of stuck in this and don't realize it and you're missing out on a lot of joy. I thought about how some of you are passing your idolatry onto your kids and it's endangering their souls. I thought about our young people who are making college and job choices based on money and not realizing they're making decisions following the idols of their heart. I thought about worries that I have, and I'm sure some of you feel over finances and how that would be alleviated if, if we didn't see money as our savior. But what I thought about most was the joy of generosity, how I need to grow in that, how I need to be more generous and and to find joy in that generosity. And this is why I can say, this is not what about what we want from you, but what we want for you. We want you to experience the joy of generosity that comes from a, a heart transformed by the gospel. 
We see this generosity in Christ coming into our world some 2000 years ago. And by grace, God then allows us to be generous with others. So I hope you see this message for what it is. It is a challenge to be sure, but it's also an encouragement. As we said at the beginning, we are meant to be generous and that generosity is meant to be a joy. And so how will you be generous this Christmas season and beyond? Will you pray with me? And Dylan, Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, for the opportunity to consider the gospel and how we can be generous with others. Lord, we thank you that you were generous with us first. And that's not only an example, Lord, but in that generosity, in that grace, you transform our hearts. And from that, Lord, may we find great joy in our generosity. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.